You're listening to the sermon podcast of Mountain View Church. Whether you're here catching up on last week's message or digging through a past series, we're so grateful you've tuned in today. Our prayer is the next 30 to 40 minutes helps you become a more whole follower of Jesus. If you're local and would like to join us, we'd love to see you this Sunday. For those who can't make it in person, services are also streamed on Facebook and YouTube. All the information about service times, what we have for kids, and much more can be found on our website, almsville.church. Now, let's open our hearts and minds to today's message. We are in a series called Summer Road Trip. Uh, if you've got a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 15. Uh, if you're on the Bible app, if you use that thing, click on events and you'll find our church and all of it is in there for you. But we're, we're on this road trip with Paul as he's traveling around, sharing the gospel, planting churches all over what to them was the known world. And uh, I hope you've been tracking with this. If you're watching online, I hope you've been able to you know, dive into the Bible app plan or just kind of tune in and keep going with us. Um, last week, Pastor Kurt spoke and he actually took us to the end of the first journey. Okay, so scholars break Paul's journeys into three segments, and uh, the end of Acts 14 was the final leg of trip number one. Um, So if you missed that, go back and and catch that. Uh, But let's bring the map up here again to kind of get our bearings so you can kind of see where we're at, what part of the world. You see the Mediterranean Sea there. You've got Greece all the way in the top left, Jerusalem all the way in the top or the bottom right. Um, So Paul's first journey, I don't know if you can kind of see the colors very well, but are the yellow arrows, right? They left Antioch, which is in present-day Syria, uh, came through the island of Cyprus, went up into Galatia and Asia. That's all, that's like present-day Turkey up there. Um, They hit all of those towns, and and then they doubled back, right? The orange is the return. They they doubled back through all of the cities, including a new one called Atalia, which we don't hear much about, they bypass Cyprus, and they go home to Antioch. Um, and the Bible says in, in the end of Acts 14 that they, they like stopped at all of those towns that they visited to just check in, uh, see how the new believers were doing there, how are the churches doing. And they must have been growing because one of the steps it says that they make is that they appoint elders, uh, leaders, to kind of organize and lead those churches. Um, and so early on, you kind of see this fact that, you know, as things grow, they're like organization becomes necessary and structure and all that stuff. That, there's some early seeds of that even here in, in Acts 14. But they skip Cyprus. They go back to Antioch. That's home base, right? That was the sending church there in Antioch. And they share a report essentially of what they've witnessed. Like here's what we've seen God do as we've been traveling around. Okay, so that's in verse 27 of Acts 14. I'll read it. It says, On arriving there in Antioch, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That's the key phrase. He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That's pretty awesome, right? These people who were formerly excluded are now able to be included right? The gospel has gone out from Jerusalem, Judea to the ends of the earth as Jesus predicted that it would. But this is kind of confusing, especially if you're a Jew, right? It's cool, but it's confusing, right? Um, 
little bit of Greek work here. The, the Greek word for Gentiles is ethnos. Ethnos, that's where we get our word ethnicity or like ethnic, right? Ethnic. In those days, when they used the word ethnos, they meant foreigners, people who were not like them. Pagans, people who worshiped other gods. Those were the Gentiles. Those were the ethnos. The word they used for themselves is this Greek word laos, L-A-O-S. They were the laos of God, the people of God. That was the Jews. Everyone else, else was ethnos, pagan, Gentiles. But what happens here is Paul comes back and he essentially reports that you can't assume that now. That in fact, some of the ethnos have become laos. Are you tracking with me? Now, if you remember back to the beginning, this is what Jesus had said would happen, what he wanted to happen, that it would go to all the earth. This is what uh, we get in the book of Revelation too, right? The last book of your Bible, it pictures heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, and the people are gathered around the throne of God worshiping, and John says it's this diverse group of people. Here's, here's the phrase, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Okay, so the, the picture there is, you know, whatever labels you want to use to describe yourself, whatever labels you want to use to divide yourself from other people, ethnos, laos, those words are used, plus a couple others. Um, they're all there. They're all worshiping God together as one. So that's the end of the story. Here we're in the middle, right? It's this beautiful vision, but in the middle of the story, as it's happening, the, the Paul and the early church have to wrestle with this question. Okay, that's great. We're really happy they're in. Kinda. Uh, how does that? How does their faith fit in with ours, though? Because we've been doing this for thousands of years. Like, we're the people of God. We are the Jews. We're the chosen ones. We've been following the law. Uh, we're the ones that God made a covenant, right? This covenant promise with. Uh, don't they have to do all the things that we had to do to get here? Like, it's, they don't get a head start, right? They, they got to go back to the beginning and do all the stuff we've done to get to this point, right? So in, in a nutshell, the question that the early church has to wrestle with is how Jewish should we expect non-Jews to live? How Jewish should non-Jews live? That's the question. And Acts 15 is where the early church has to settle that. Right? This is a pivotal moment in the journey. The decision that's made here, the way they talk about it, this kind of decides whether Paul's gonna go back out on the road or not in a lot of ways. Okay, so it's in AD 48. It's what's called the Jerusalem Council. And it takes place in Acts chapter 15. Okay, we'll just start in verse one. It says, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, According to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, you want to be in? You want to be a part of the people of God? You want to find salvation in Jesus? Here's the path. You have to be circumcised. 
This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. So on their way to Jerusalem, they're just sharing, hey, guess what? All these Gentiles, I mean, they've all come to faith, and and the people they share with are pretty excited about it. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Um, so uh, it's a small thing, but something that caught my eye here was uh, the geography of this, right? And how it describes the travel to and from Jerusalem. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you, you heard this in there, but let, let's put the map back up there, Aiden, if you've got the map. So you see Antioch up there and, and then Jerusalem is down here in the top right. But the, the scripture there says that um, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. But that's north, right? It says they, they went down. Why does it say down, right? This would be like uh, if he said, okay, we're all gonna leave here and we're gonna go down to Portland, right? It's like, uh, no, you, you know, we're gonna go up to Medford. If I said these things, you would be like, he's not from around here. He's new. <laughs> Let's help the pastor out, Right? That, that's what it says, because then, then it makes the opposite mistake. It says that Paul, who's in Antioch, went up to Jerusalem. No, no, he didn't. He went down to Jerusalem. What's going on here? This is, this is really weird. Um, now, part of this is because Jerusalem is pretty elevated, and so there is, a, there is sort of this climb that you make to get into the city of Jerusalem. So that, that's part of it, but it's more than that, right? What we need to understand, we gotta get back into the first century mind and realize that Jerusalem was the epicenter, the heart of Judaism, okay? This is where the temple is. This is where most of the festivals took place where people would gather from all around to celebrate together. This is where all of the big wigs and the who's who of Judaism scholarship and religion uh, leadership reside. This is Jewish headquarters, okay? Wesleyan headquarters is in, is in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, this, is, this is Jewish headquarters. So when you go to Jerusalem, you're always going up to it or coming down from it. Because in a very real spiritual sense, Jerusalem is a mountaintop experience for a Jew. So it makes sense that this is where things have to go. This is where Paul and Barnabas have to make their case. This is where the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers have got to get together and figure this out. Okay, verse five. They're in Jerusalem. Verse five. Then... Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, sometimes they're referred to as the Judaizers, stood up and say, the Gentiles must be circumcised and, here's another one, and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, we we talked two weeks ago about how exciting it would have been as a God-fearer, as a Gentile, to hear that the requirement of circumcision had been dropped right? If you're a guy, you're like, I feel better about this idea, right? If, if that's not true, if circumcision is required, honey, I'm going to stay in the car. You can go to church, 
Okay? <laughs> Paul had been essentially teaching that this wasn't required. Now there's a group from Jerusalem, from headquarters, saying, actually, Paul's wrong. It is required. Why would they do that? And part of what I don't want us to do is maybe read back our own assumptions into the text. We, we can do that a lot with Scripture. Um, it might be easy for us to throw these guys under the bus and say, oh, they were just being a bunch of jerks. You know, they just want to keep people out and they were just trying to, you know, be, be privileged and, you know, whatever. Um, you have to understand, circumcision was something God had required for generations. It was the thing that marked Jews as different from all of the other nations, all of the other religions around them. It was a big deal. It was how they, the primary way you showed your loyalty to God's covenant, to his promises. It was how you stayed in right relationship with God. So they're thinking, okay, if Gentiles want to be in, if they want to be the people of God like we are, then they've got to submit to the same things that we do. Because remember, the last time we didn't, the last time we Jews decided to go off the rails and kind of do our own thing and not follow the laws of God, what happened? Exile. God removed his hand of protection from Israel. The other nations came in, conquered the land, dragged them out of there. Now they're finally back and they don't want to go through that again. Do you understand maybe their mindset of kind of how they're thinking? I don't think it's just like, well, we just want to be hard and not let anybody else be included. They're worried about the favor of God. they I think their motivations are good for the most part. They want to protect the, the purity of their religion. They want to protect the purity of this thing that God is now doing. And so they say, okay, you've accepted Jesus. That's great. Excited about that. We're glad to have you in the club. Now here, here's the membership handbook. Right? Or, hey, we're glad you've moved into the neighborhood. Neighbor, here's our right hand of fellowship. You're, yeah, we're great. We're neighbors. Here's the HOA rules if you want to stay a part of this community. And what they hand them is the law. 613 commands plus circumcision. That'll do the trick, right? That, that will make sure that only people who are really serious about God and only people who will follow and stay loyal, those are the only people who will wanna be a part of this thing and all the people who are kind of lukewarm and like, ah, we're not really sure about that, they won't even sign up. That will work. That will keep this pure. It's really easy to get there. It, it is so easy to fall into this, right? You, you see this happen in lots of churches and I've been a part of some of them. Um, you, you can see this happening in businesses like or other institutions uh, that maybe you've been a part of where, you know, like when it first starts, there's this excitement about this new thing that's happening and, and it's like, yeah, let's just get everybody, you know, whatever it takes, that, that startup mentality, that entrepreneurial spirit like in a business world, right? Where it's like whatever it takes to make the next product or the next sale or in the church world, whatever it takes to reach the next person, like God, that's what we want and we're just gonna try things and it's gonna be awesome. And But then as the organization or the church or the institution, as, as it grows, so, so does the bureaucracy. 
Anybody know what I'm talking about? Don't say the name of who you work for. Um, we start to add all these layers and then here's the handbook and oh, let's throw this policy in there because we got to like protect the culture. We're shaping a certain kind of culture. I, there's reasons for this, right? And Because it, it's not always bad. We use bureaucracy almost always in a negative sense. The reality is as things grow, it has to have organization. There has to be new structures and new roles and, and you got to start defining like, well, what's okay around here and what's not. And like, so some of that stuff is just normal and, it, and it's, it's fine. But what happens is if you're not careful, all of those extra layers you add on start to, to stunt or even hijack the original mission that you were excited about. Right? How many of us, it's like you start a new job and on day one, you're like, this is gonna be awesome. And by year five, you're like, this is terrible. And, and it's not necessarily because the job itself has changed, but it's just everything else that's come with it, right? Or you get a promotion and you're like, oh, I'm so excited for this promotion. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I hate this promotion. I hate this job. What did I sign up for? Right, the very reason sometimes you get into it in the first place gets lost and that's, that's kind of what's happening really early on in, in the church here. And Peter, one of the earliest disciples, he's really torn. Okay, if you know anything about Peter's story, particularly in the book of Acts, just a few chapters before this, Acts 10 and 11, um, Peter has this, this miraculous vision um, where God reveals to him things that he would consider unclean as a Jew are suddenly now clean, like foods that they weren't supposed to eat are now okay. And people who normally weren't included were included. Like this guy named Cornelius, he goes to his house. He's a Gentile, he's not circumcised. And the Holy Spirit comes in, in on Cornelius and his family and he becomes a follower of Christ. And so Peter's like, wow, that, okay, this is blowing categories here. Like I, I don't understand what's going on. So he's seen it happen, but then he, Peter also wants to be accepted by his peers. We all do. And so what is he going to say? What does he believe? Is he going to side with the idea that circumcision is required or not? Or does he have an, because Peter's a heavyweight, okay? What he says really matters. is going to carry a lot of influence. So wh where's Peter going to go on this debate? Well, here's verse seven. It says, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. So he's referring back to what I just talked about. Peter's already shared with them, hey, I've actually experienced this where Gentiles came to faith. He says, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. <laughs> this is my, I pictured him like stomp. He stomps right there, right? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Right? Peter reminds him of his own experience with Cornelius and seeing Gentiles come to faith. And then he says, God knows the heart. God knows the heart. That's the issue. 
Right? The heart of the issue is always the issue of the heart. Not what's on out here, what's going on in here, which, by the way, only God can see. You and I can't see into people's hearts. We try. We All the time, we try to judge people's motives, and, oh, I think they really meant this. And it's like, guess what? You and I can't see that, but God can. And Peter says, that's where God operates. Just as he's changed us from the inside out, I have seen with my own two eyes God doing that with these Gentiles, with these ethnos. So Peter says, if God chose them, who are you and I to exclude them? We better not do that. It's a pretty strong speech. Not only that, (laughs) Peter says, can we get real for a minute? You and I don't even keep all the laws. Did you catch that? You and I don't even, we can't even measure up to all of that. That's why we have the sacrificial system. That's why we have to do the goats and the donkeys. No, they don't, they didn't sacrifice donkeys. That'd be sad, right? We're not, we're not perfect. We can't even follow this stuff. Why, why would we make them try to do it? So Peter reminds them of what grace is. That this is what makes this whole gospel good news. That it's no longer about you and me and whether we dot all the I's and cross all the T's, but Jesus and our faith in him has saved us. It is built on grace. It is built on what he has done, not what we've done. And they can experience that just like we have. Verse 12 says, the whole assembly became silent. They didn't have mics back then, but if they did, Peter just dropped one, right? (laughs) Then it's Barnabas and Paul's turn, right? It says, Barnabas and Paul tell them about the signs and wonders God has done among the Gentiles through them. So they kind of share what they've experienced, which kind of just says, yep, same thing Peter's been seeing. We've been seeing it all over the place where we've gone. Then verse 13, when they finished, James spoke up. Now, Peter's a heavy hitter, right? His word means a lot. He's original, he was an original disciple, so he's gonna carry a lot of weight in Jerusalem. But truth be told, Peter wavered. This is what Peter here, he's saying, uh, yeah, no, we should include them, but that wasn't always the case. In fact, if you read the book of Galatians, which is Paul's probably like angriest letter, um, he details the time when Peter was eating, he was eating in fellowship with Gentiles, and then when his friends saw it, he pulled back and decided he couldn't socialize with them to save face. So Peter's right, but he hasn't always been consistent. So now James steps up. James, he's the de facto leader of the Jerusalem church. He's, uh, he's known as a great man of prayer, highly, like his character is impeccable, highly respected. And James is the half-brother of Jesus, Okay, that's the James. So, (laughs) I mean, talk about a heavy hitter, right? When the brother of the guy you believe died for your sins and came back to life speaks, you listen. You're like, let's hear what James thinks. So James is gonna stand up and go, hey, let me give my opinion on this. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon which that's interesting. That's Peter's Jewish name. He's, he's helping these Jewish people come along for the journey, right? He's using his, his Jewish name. Geeky detail that probably only I care about. Um, 
Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. Okay, so you've heard it from Peter. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, may seek Yahweh, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things. Things known from long ago. So James says, yep, this is our present experience. You've heard Peter, Paul, and Barnabas all say, like, this is what God is doing among us. But then he says, this isn't some new fancy idea that they've just cooked up. If you look at our scriptures, if you look at the Old Testament, I know this is confusing, maybe kind of hard to swallow even, to want to accept these people. But our scriptures have pointed this to us all the time. James says this has always been the plan, that even the Gentiles, that's the phrase, even the ethnos, the Gentiles, the nations, will one day seek our God, and it is happening now. And so here's his opinion. He calls it his judgment. Verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. For me, um, verse 19 is one of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture. And it's, it's simultaneously inspiring to me, like, yeah, and also really convicting, like, oh, no. <laughs> That's what the Bible does, right? It encourages and challenges at the same time. James says, it's my judgment we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And that, as we'll see, that became the heartbeat of the early church. And it should be the heartbeat of everyone who follows Jesus today. That we would do everything within our power to not make it difficult for people to turn to God. Because by the way, all of us in here, and probably everyone watching online, we're all Gentiles according to Scripture Unless you were Jewish, I mean, I could be wrong. But we're all adopted into the family by grace through faith in Christ. We we got in the easy way, essentially, is what I'm trying to tell you. And, and, And James says, we've known about this a long time. We've been praying for this day. The prophets talked about it. The Old Testament talked about it. We've been waiting for this exact moment when all of those nations around us that we used to kind of scoff at and hold our nose at would actually turn and, and become a part of us and, and, and want to seek out our God. And now it's here and it's happening. And some of us can't see it. And worse yet, some of us see it And it's like we're actively working against it. This section of scripture always makes me stop and ask this question. And I kind of want to just sit in this for a minute and 
want you to just kind of think about this, but is there anything that I'm doing intentionally or unintentionally that's making it harder for people to turn to God? That's the question, isn't it? Intentionally or unintentionally, like I'm doing it on purpose and I'm, I'm happy about it or I'm just kind of accidentally putting up some obstacles and barriers and I didn't even realize it. I'm kind of unconscious to it. I think this happens way more than we realize. And like the Jews in Paul's day, I, I don't think most of us mean to. I don't think we wake up and go, you know what? I, I really wanna do everything in my power today to make sure people turn away from God. Right? If you're in this room, you're, you're like, chances are that's not how you feel and think. So most of the time, I don't think we do it on purpose. We do it unintentionally. Right? Sometimes it's because we're driven by fear. Right? And fear's crazy. I mean, fear will cause you to do and say things that don't really make a whole lot of sense. Sometimes it's because we put our energy into the wrong fights and we get sucked into fighting one another, even other Christians, rather than fighting against our real enemy, Satan. And those fights just spoil people and make them want nothing to do with the church, you know? Sometimes we create our favorite list of rules and expectations that aren't actually in the Bible. Like, yeah, we want you to come to church and we want you to be a part of this Jesus thing, but like, here's the handbook. And it's like, well, can you show me a scripture for that one? Well, no, but we just think it's a good idea. Well, okay, but good ideas aren't God ideas and I'm not sure that that should be the barrier of entry. And we make it harder for people Or we live in hypocrisy. We, we say one thing and, and then we live a different way. I mean, every time I read a story of a pastor who's been caught in scandal or a church that's covered up abuse, sometimes for years, all I imagine in my head is all the people walking away from God that will use that as their reasoning. When I meet with people who I say, hey, you know, I'm a pastor, do you wanna to come to my church? Well, first of all, I usually have to get over the fact that I'm a pastor. I don't know, my face must say I'm a pagan, but like, they're always shocked. They're always like, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah for real. Um, <laughs> but then they'll tell me stories about church hurt, right? Almost everybody I meet with that doesn't come to church, is, you know, I kinda, no one ever says, yeah, I just really don't like Jesus, I, like, I've never met anyone that's like, when I read about Jesus, I'm so unattracted to that guy. Almost everybody's like, man, that, that's some great stuff, but gosh, the church is such a mess, and this happened to me, and they did this to my mom, and they... Now, no one is perfect. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. No church is perfect, and if you're one of those people who's like, yep, that's exactly why I don't want to go to church, or that's why I don't believe, listen, when you stand before God, he's not going to ask you, hey, what about that other person over there and what they did, he's gonna say, what are you, like, who are you to me? What do you think about me? So we are all responsible for our own relationship with God. We cannot use the sins of other people in other churches as an excuse to run from God. That's an excuse, it just is. But man, I, I wanna live in such a way, I wanna lead our church in such a way that makes it easier, not harder for people to come to God. 
Not a single, thank you. Not a single amen on that. I appreciate that. Do you want to be a part of a church that makes it easier for people to come to God or harder, right? Like, so that's the question for us as individuals and then as a body, right, as his church, what kind of church do we want to be? And then the prayer to follow up that is what David says in the Psalms, right, where David says, Lord, search me. Right? Lord, would you search my heart, my thoughts, my actions? Lord, would you search my social media posts this week? Did what I share about the decision that came down with the Supreme Court this week, did that make it harder or easier for people to turn to God? Which one was it? And if there's anything I'm doing intentionally or unintentionally, which again, I think is the vast majority of us, I don't think any of us wake up and go, you know, I hope I'd be a jerk for Jesus today. But is there anything I'm doing intentionally or unintentionally that's making it harder for people to want to know the Savior that I know? If so, show me, change me, change me. I don't want to be that. I don't want to be the obstacle. Now, the objection, and I can already kind of feel this, is, okay, so Mike, are you saying that anything goes, that we shouldn't have any expectations, and that God doesn't have any expectations. And, and the answer to that is no, <laughs> right? This is the fear, I think, with this conversation is it's always about, you know, they call it the slippery slope fallacy for a reason because it's a fallacy. But it's like, okay, so are you saying that people can do whatever they want? And Because I think the fear is if we lower the bar of entry into the people of God, that we will begin this slow slide into debauchery. And that we'll just kind of bless everything.